Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hello everyone, and welcome to the History of England, episode 287. Enter Good Queen Bess. Now originally my script noted that I was releasing this episode spookily exactly 461 years to the day when Elizabeth became Queen on the death of Mary on the 17th of November 1558. These were levels of spookiness with which it was difficult to deal, but in the end fate intervened, and I spent the next 84 days confined to a small room. Even despite the wonderfulness of the NHS, the good humour, expertise and friendliness of the nurses and doctors, of whom I really just cannot speak highly enough, this is close to 84 days too long. My thanks, though, to the long-tailed tits who flew around in a ceaseless murmuration all of those days outside my window. How they didn't drop dead from exhaustion, I do not know, but I know they did it for me. Anyway, look, given the false start last time, I'm not going to get emotional. I'm not going to offer promises. I'll do what I can, but I think the schedule on the website should be considered as aspirational as a sales manager's sales forecasts. The only thing I am going to get a bit emotional about, but all those messages you lot sent me over the 84 days... It made such a difference to me, ferreted away in that small room. Thank you. Thank you very much. The next two episodes, incidentally, had been into one, but made it a rather long episode with two disconnected subjects. So I split the podcast into two rather short episodes. I hope this is okay, though I suspect it'll annoy people like Frank, who outrageously use my podcast purely to get them off to sleep at night. This week, therefore, it's Elizabeth's entry into London. In two weeks' time, we'll talk about her historiography. So let's get on with it then. Let me take you to London on a January morning in 1559. It's cold, and there had been a light dusting of snow the night before, and in January, London, 1559, let me tell you, that means mud and misery. But not today, Zerg. Not today. On this day, London was decked out in her finest livery. Preparations had been going on since Christmas for the event that was to follow. And it was a team effort. So, if you owned a house in certain parts of London, you had made careful preparation by placing sand and gravel in front of your house to ease the passage of the expected visitors. And that's not all. 
the event organisers would have been round your way wearing their solemn robes and their serious faces and their notes, probably sent by printer Richard Grafton. So that by Saturday the 14th of January, the houses all along the route through London, from the Tower of London all the way to the edge of the city, were decorated with tapestries and banners and paintings. London, in short, was preparing for a hoolie. All along the streets on both sides were wooden barricades, and on the day, behind those barricades, London was absolutely rammed. And I mean rammed. London had now reached the massive population of 120,000, so that our small damp island had a city of truly European proportions at last, and which, in comparison, made every other English city look like something of a pimple on the national buttock. All the livery companies had joined the party in hanging out their banners and decking themselves out in their livery robes. A three-line whip had been exercised centuries before the phrase would be invented, so that all the apprentices had been turned out in their best. Although by early afternoon, I would imagine that in the finest tradition of London apprentices, a few beers had been sneaked in and consumed, no doubt adding to the carnival atmosphere. Next to them, on the barricades, an observer tells us that Merchants and artisans of every trade lent in long black gowns lined with hoods of red and black cloth, such as are usually worn by the rectors of universities in Italy, with all their ensigns, banners and standards, which were innumerable and made a very fine show. And of course, next to, among and all around them was everybody else. By two o'clock, the noise, hubbub and sense of excitement and expectation would have been intense. And then along the crowd came the ripple of excitement that something had been seen, that she was coming. Necks would have been craned, tiptoes stood on, shouts raised. The object of all this excitement and preparation was a 25-year-old woman, moderately tall, red-haired and fair-skinned. She is sharp, intelligent, speaks multiple languages and had led a very dangerous life so far. But whatever we can say about her, what would have been very evident today was that she had all the charisma of her dad and what's more, she knew it. One of those that was close to her said of her, when she smiled, it was pure sunshine that everyone did choose to bask in if they could. And so indeed, out from the tower came a vast procession of 1,000 of the greatest and the goodest, dressed all in their finery and accompanied by magnificently dressed servants and companions. And together, in a long, long line, they trotted and marched a glittering cavalcade through the London streets. But in the end, they were nubbut the soup before the main course. The main course came near the end of the procession and finally came the moment everyone was waiting for, for the new Queen, Elizabeth. For we are, of course, talking of Elizabeth Tudor. She was seated in an open carriage and dressed to impress in a robe of very rich cloth of gold, a plain crown over a quaff made again 
of cloth of gold. Her hair was loose as befits the unmarried queen, but laced with jewels. And behind her on a horse came Lord Robert Dudley, her master of the horse, whom she'd known since childhood. Everybody, of course, went potty, yelling and cheering and waving. Now, look, London was used to seeing glorious processions travel through the city and was used to turning out to wave and cheer. Here, though, there were special considerations. Three, let's say. Firstly, London was as Protestant as any place in England and had seen more than its fair share of burnings and persecution under Mary and Henry. While their new queen had carefully kept her religious preferences under wraps, there were hopes, and hopes more than fears, because there were rumours that in her private chapel she had withdrawn from the chapel when the host was elevated by her chaplain which since said elevation was something of a bugbear for Protestants, was a hopeful news. And the burnings had immediately stopped on Mary's death and the condemned released from prison. So there was a thrill of hope that Elizabeth would favour the reformed religion. Secondly, the last time there had been a major possession, it had been for the marriage of their Queen Mary to a Spanish king and the procession was flooded with foreign merchants and courtiers which had not been popular, and which were less of a feature here. But the third was down to Elizabeth herself, and her apparent genius for connecting with people to her charm, energy and charisma. Normally, these events were magnificent displays where the potentates passed and waved and the people cheered and then went back to whatever they were doing. Actual interaction was minimal. You went to see the show. This event was different. A unique event even. This was a conversation. A contemporary report gushed that Elizabeth, on entering the city, was of the people received marvellously entirely, as appeared by the assembly. Prayers, wishes, welcomings, cries, tender words and all other signs which argue a wonderful, earnest love of the most obedient subjects towards their sovereign. And on the other side, her grace, by holding up her hands and merry countenance to such as stood far off, and most tender and gentle language to those that stood nigh to her grace, did declare herself no less thankfully to receive her people's goodwill than they lovingly offered it unto her. All that wished her grace well, she gave hearty thanks. Here was the Queen at the top of her game, not just showing herself to the people, not just doing the basic of what needed to be done, but loving every minute of it and flourishing in it, joking and laughing with the crowd. As she passed the tower menagerie, she saw an old man weep and turn his face away. I'm sure those were tears of joy, she joked. Someone cried out from the crowd, Remember old King Henry! And she was seen to smile broadly at him. As she passed, now some of the poorer women of the city pushed their way through the crowd with nosegays or branch rosemary and flowers, and they offered them to the young queen, saying, God save your grace! And so she stopped. She didn't just pass by. She stopped and she took them. I thank you with all my heart, 
she said, before commanding the procession to move on again. It's not just that this was unusually, even exceptionally personal. Elizabeth was in control. She would not be hurried by the waiting grandees. She was with her people, and she would let them know that at this moment at least, they would come first, that she would match their love with hers. She had already shown this quality when first coming into London back in November, soon after Queen Mary had died. She had stopped the procession outside the house of the Earl of Northampton and talked to the family who were hanging out of a window. The Spanish ambassador, Count Ferreira, acidly remarked that she had only done it because Northampton was a heretic. But he noted too Elizabeth's easy command of the situation and all of those around her. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. By now, they'd reached Fenchurch Street, and amidst the cheering of the crowd, came to the first of five pageants, telling the story of her descent from the houses of Lancaster and York, with her mother Anne Boleyn proudly and finally rehabilitated, and visualised seated next to Henry VIII. A poem was read out as she passed the display, but the noise from the cheering was too great for her to hear, so again she called a halt to the procession, and she turned back to hear the words and acknowledge them. More pageants and displays until they came to Cheapside, the main market for the City of London, broad and wide, with trumpets blowing as they arrived. And there stood the worthies of the city corporation itself, with the traditional gift of money to a new monarch, 1,000 marks in gold in this case. I thank my Lord Mayor, his brethren, and you all, whereas your request is that I should continue, your great lady and lord, be assured, I will be as good unto you as ever Queen was to her people. On to another display with an image of time with his scythe. <gasps> time, exclaimed the Queen, and it is time that has brought us here. Until she noticed Time's daughter, Truth, who carried a Bible, ostentatiously labelled the Word of Truth. You might remember that the Bible in English had made a snarky appearance at one of Mary's pageants, and Stephen Gardiner had made a fuss and had it removed. Well, there was none of that for Elizabeth, who demanded a Bible be bought. Hurriedly queries were made, a Bible found, and she kissed it, and with both her hands held up the same, and so laid it on her breast, with great thanks to the city therefore. Thus... Elizabeth announced her Protestant credentials. And so onwards to the last pageant, where her image appeared, rather prophetically as it happens, as the new Deborah, the biblical queen who rescued Israel from the king of Canaan and then ruled for 40 years. Finally, Elizabeth had reached the temple bar from where she'd leave the city, down the Strand and to Westminster. Before she passed through, she gave one more declaration to the crowd. Be well assured, I will stand you good queen. 
and a good times had by all. Since the purpose of this episode was to talk about Elizabeth's historiography, I suppose I should now offer you all an apology, since I had maybe rather overdone it with the procession. But it's a lot of fun, especially if you take it at face value. The arrival of a new, popular, vital, charismatic queen who would be a mother to her people, maybe heal a few wounds. You may have noticed the if in my sentence, which suggests that naughtiness is going on. Because there is something of an if on the story of the procession, although the majority of histories are happy to take it at face value, actually. There are three main accounts of the procession that tend to be used. Il Chiffonia was the Venetian ambassador who wrote a letter to the Castellan of Mantua at the time and gave a very detailed account of the procession. Then, there's a two-page entry in the Diary of London by a Londoner called Henry Matchin. And then, there's a 21-page pamphlet produced probably by a schoolteacher called Richard Mulcaster. Now, this last one is the official account of the procession as it happens, approved by the Queen. Now, there are some differences between the three, but to be honest... The main events, the processions, the pageants, the handing over of 1,000 marks, all those bits are pretty much corroborated in the same between all three. So that's great. But the nice little touches, the Queen's interaction with the crowd, all that magic fairy dust stuff, that's not mentioned by Machin or Il Shefaniya at all. Now, you can look at this in two ways. You can say, as most do actually, that this is because Mulcaster was right there recording stuff. And hey, the vast majority of what he says is verified, so fair dues, we can trust the lad. Or you can say this is a piece of outrageous government propaganda and it never happened that way. The conclusion you like to take probably depends on the view you take of Elizabeth but I would say that Elizabeth was perfectly capable of any scenario. She was perfectly capable of playing with a crowd, as Mulchester said. Perfectly capable of preparing a few choice words before the event, rather than being all spontaneous, as Mulcaster suggests. Or perfectly capable of encouraging Mulcaster to embroider the story and tell the story that really should have been true. I'll make one point about that, though, that even if it wasn't true, the fact that this was the way Elizabeth wanted to be presented is almost as significant and reaffirms the point that popularity with her people was important to Elizabeth. All of which is going to lead us to a discussion of how historians have made those interpretations about Elizabeth, the kind of person she was, and the events of her reign. But... Sticking to this particular incident just for the moment, although it would be very easy to dismiss the record of Elizabeth's procession as propaganda, there are a few comments about Elizabeth that suggest that, well, no, actually, you're probably wrong to be cynical, quite apart from the fact that cynicism makes nobody happy and is one of the most corrosive attitudes, although it can minimise disappointment, I suppose. Elizabeth might just very well have been the kind of person that did indeed feed off the love of a crowd and had a talent for pleasing it. This monarch who had a particular feeling for her people. So, for a couple of examples, you might remember the Count of Ferrier, effectively Philip's right-hand man in England, while he was absent. 
and of course also therefore seated on the right hand of Queen Mary. As soon as the seriousness of Mary's illness became apparent in 1558, he was off to Elizabeth's place at Ashbridge like a rat up a drain, the little tinker, hoping to have the same privileges as he had enjoyed with Mary. He was, in this, to be firmly disappointed. After his meeting, he wrote to Philip. She puts great store by the people and is very confident that they are all on her side, which is certainly true. Then let me take you all the way to a cold and dark December evening in 1588 on the Strand in London. A law student called Geoffrey Goodman wrote about how he and many others, filled with excitement, pride and probably relief at the defeat of the Armada, waited for an hour and a half for the Queen to appear from a building. At last she did so, and the crowd reacted with flag-waving delight and cried, God save your majesty! And then again, God save your majesty! Both times Elizabeth responded, the second time saying warmly, Ye may well have a greater prince, but ye shall never have a more loving prince. Hated or loathe it, Elizabeth not only had charisma, but she did identify strongly with her people. I'm not for the moment suggesting there was any egalitarianism about any of this, God forbid. Elizabeth was entirely traditional, and if you stepped out of line, you'd soon know about it. Here is one of the many comments told by her godson and disappointed courtier, John Harrington. She would say her state did require her to command that which she knew her people would willingly do from their own love to her. So that's great. I won't ask of my people what they didn't want to give. Again, not suggesting that she did not frequently demand plenty that some of her subjects in particular did not want to give, Catholics and Irish in particular, but her people are in her mind and the relationship is important. However, Harrington goes on to say, When obedience was lacking, she left no doubtings whose daughter she was. So, you know, all love and that sort of thing, until it came down to her way or no way. My point holds, though. Elizabeth did feel she had a special bond with all her people, and it was important to her. And here was a person prepared to break the rules along the way. It's your choice as to whether or not you believe Morcaster's vision of the Queen and her people in the procession. I choose to believe it. OK, that is it for this week. See you in a fortnight to hear how historians have dealt with her. Good luck, everyone, and have a great fortnight. And again, thanks for all those encouraging messages of support.